Super Talk Mississippi media production. What's the key to discovering delectable dining? Find something that sizzles. A time-tested favorite. A feast for your eyes and palate. And a dining experience handled with care. In Vicksburg, the key to the South. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. And as Rhino just told me, it's not Monday. It ain't Monday. <laughs> no, indeed, it is a uh, actually it's a delightful Tuesday here. In uh, January, one more day in month one of 2024, and we roll right into February. With another dose of that strange glowing orb in the sky. That's right. I'm loving it. On the program today, in the next segment, Jansen Owen, a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives, he represents District 106, which includes uh, Lamar and Pearl River counties. Serves as the vice chair of the Judiciary A, uh, pardon me, B, B, B committee. We'll get an update on some legislation uh, Representative Owen is working on. That includes a big fentanyl bill, along with a bill concerning open enrollment for public schools and some charter school legislation as well. Looking forward to that conversation with Representative Owen. And then at 11.05, it's Representatives uh, Fred Shanks and Price Wallace. They're coming in to talk about that ballot initiative legislation that they have been uh, involved in from a Authorship perspective, you know, that thing passed the House. It's been sent over to the Mississippi Senate. We'll get an update on where they think it is and how they'd handicap the chances of such legislation uh, being passed in the Senate. And then, and that's it. No, no governor uh, requirement, approval requirement here, because this is a resolution that would go to the ballot for the folks to vote on, and that would amend the state constitution, uh, thereby establishing a brand-new ballot initiative process in the great state of Mississippi. In the meantime, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know who he is, uh, was a candidate for president of these United States. He's got quite the theory on the Super Bowl matchup Coming in a couple of weeks, he says he thinks the thing is rigged, rigged for the Chiefs. That's what he said, and that is because he expects a major presidential endorsement 
Coming from uh, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, you know, she dates, of course, tight end Chiefs, tight end Mr. Uh, what's his name? Kelsey. What's his name? Travis Kelsey. Ted Kelsey, pardon me. Yeah, couldn't remember his first name. So the theory, Mr. Ramaswamy, is advancing here is that the Chiefs are going to win. And then there's going to come a, a uh, an endorsement on the heels of that. He said, this is just some wild speculation. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months. That's interesting. Now, it's not clear at this point whether or not Taylor Swift is going to weigh in here on this, uh, this race. She has, uh, in the past... I think she's made some statements that were somewhat political. You know, okay, so you, you're dating a guy who's a superstar, makes a living catching footballs. And every time you perform, you sell the place out and make a fortune. Can't you just be happy with that? Why do you got to put your finger on the scale here of politics? Because you know the Swifties are likely to fall in line. I mean, that's just... I think to be expected, but that is Mr. Ramaswamy's NFL theory. We're calling it. There's oh, God. a handful of theories that have been going around regarding Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, and of course, that's the political spin on it. There's a little bit more of a Pollyanna, I guess, is the right term theory for it from. I want to say it was Uncle Doomer was the first one, and it's kind of been offshoots from there. But the first one I saw was Uncle Doomer. Okay. said, if Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey have a baby, it'll usher in a new baby boom as millions of 25- to 35-year-old women will follow suit. Not far behind will be manufacturing and a housing boom, a tremendous lifestyle Good shift for dream. millions of newly minted families, a new golden <laughs> era for America. Wow. And then to expound on that, a guy named Ryan McIntosh yeah. said, The Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Kelsey passes the trophy to Taylor before promptly getting down on one knee and proposing. <laughs> Two months pass, and she announces her pregnancy. Marriages and birth rates skyrocket. The CCP collapses. Amazon moves its headquarters to Kansas City. The S&P 500 hits 9,000. <laughs> she didn't know she had such power. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, there's no secret that... California Governor Gavin Newsom, I mean, he's all but begged Swift to throw her support behind President Biden. Now, you know he is absolutely chomping at the bit to jump in as the Democrat nominee for president. Uh, Newsom said Taylor Swift stands tall and unique. (laughs) This was after a Republican primary debate. In September, what she was able to accomplish just in getting young people activated to consider that they have a voice and that they should have a choice in the next election, I think, is profoundly powerful. He made that statement to the New York Times. So you just wonder, is Gavin calling up Taylor and saying, you got to get in there and announce an endorsement for President Biden? I don't know. 
But there's lots of buzz around this issue. And old Vivek Ramaswamy, who just looks to be, I don't know, trying to get attention, stumping for attention. And, uh, you know, I still am unclear as to whether or not he would be considered by President Trump for vice president, uh, his running mate, and whether or not he would accept it. It's just not clear at this point, honestly. But that's where we are, and we shall see what goes on with respect to that. Also, this drone attack on American troops, three of which were killed and 30, I believe, were injured. I don't know if that's still the numbers of those injured. I don't know if that has been adjusted since then. 34, 34, it appears, have been wounded. I'm just looking at it now. But... So are you seeing these reports that this could have been avoided, that there were some mistakes made in identifying the drone, didn't immediately identify it as uh, one that was from the enemy, it was mistaken as a U.S. drone? What in the world's going on here? How well, can- this is like the seventh or eighth attack that i that i'm aware of that has occurred on u.s installations in the middle east this is just the first one that has actually hit home okay and killed american service members and injured others okay and this is in a demilitarized zone the installation which was attacked um you know it it may sound a bit uh as hyperbole but it does make you wonder, with all this focus on DEI and CRT and white rage and privilege walks and all this nonsense in the U.S. military, instead of developing a lethal fighting force, which is what the military is supposed to be, is that causing these sorts of mistakes? And that just sounds blatantly incompetent, honestly. We don't have better technology than that to discern between an enemy drone and a U.S. drone? That's kind of scary. What's next? Full-size aircraft? Oh, that's friendly. Next thing you know, a bomb drops or a missile is released. That's just crazy. It's, it's, I think it ought to be a full-scale investigation by the Congress into how this could happen. Because if it happened once... I mean, have we made some adjustments in our technology, in our detection systems, to ensure such doesn't happen again? I don't know, man. Really uh, scary deal, in my view. We got to talk later on about Elon Musk's Neuralink. Neuralink. This is something that uh, I've talked about before, and the very first brain chip chip implanted in a human. This is a chip that was devised and invented by Musk and his company. Well, that occurred, and the patient is recovering. We'll talk about what that does for the patient later on in the program. Next, it's Representative Jansen Owen. Stay with us. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so 
awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Rush bumming us into this segment here on Middays. We are coming at you live from the Alamut Wealth Studio, and we welcome to the program now Representative Jansen Owen. He represents District 106, which includes Lamar and Pearl River counties, serves as the vice chair of the Judiciary B Committee. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Representative Jansen Owen, appreciate you coming in. So... Let's get into uh, some legislation that you're working on regarding fentanyl. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, fentanyl is plaguing the country right now. A lot of it's coming over our our really porous border, as we've all seen on the news lately. In fact, last year, I believe 80-plus percent of overdoses in the United States were fentanyl-related. Wow. Yeah, but... Under our law, fentanyl is treated like any other Schedule One or Schedule II drug as far as sentencing, as far as your penalties for possessing or transferring those drugs. So this bill is going to bring some, a little bit, um, I know our criminal justice guys are not going to like it, but it's going to increase the penalties for fentanyl-related um, transfer and um, trafficking um, if you're trafficking fentanyl in this state, we're gonna we're gonna increase those penalties. We're gonna provide um, some resources to our prosecutors and police officers to combat fentanyl and fentanyl-related crimes. So, um, it's a work in progress. I have not dropped it yet. I'm still drafting it. Um, I actually was emailing our awesome drafting attorneys at about 2 a.m. on Saturday night, so they were still there working. Um, trying to get it uh, finalized, but that's the goal right now is to kind of bring some. Bring some attention to the fentanyl and and get us some some help for our law enforcement guys out there. Speaking of the attorneys that draft all these bills, I don't see how they do it, man. They work their rears off. Oh, I know. They're there. I don't think they ever go home during session. I feel bad for them. It's constant. I do try to get them some desserts or cookies or cupcakes here here and there. But Good for you, you know, they're 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 hard workers. I appreciate our our attorneys there at the Capitol. Well, and you know, the other group that uh, works tirelessly is LBO, oh, especially towards the end. Oh, That's the seven twenty four deal. Yeah, that now those guys counting those numbers. I I go up there sometimes just to see what they're doing, and I get a headache as soon as I walk in. I'm like, I can't even. All these like dollar signs are floating around. I got to leave. <laughs> so you you mentioned that uh, um, just a moment ago that you think some of the criminal justice reform folks may may have some heartburn over this. Mm-hmm. What's their issue with this specifically? They don't like mandatory minimums. Um, which I'm probably going to have that in there. We already have mandatory minimums on our drug crime. So my goal is to kind of increase, if my goal is to increase penalties for fentanyl related and, and separate them for our regular, from our regular Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 drugs, um, we're going to have to increase those mandatory minimums okay. or the maximums. So um, their, their idea right now is we don't really need to do that. We need to give judges more discretion. I agree with that. I'm even considering some, you know, some discretionary measures to put in the bill if the judge will make a finding of fact here and there. But um, basically, their idea is we, we're increasing our prison population too much right now. So we, you know, this will hurt their efforts to, to not do that. So. Yeah. So um, 
Was this driven uh, by law enforcement? This just something that you had ideas about my lo- like it needed to be addressed? My local law enforcement, my district attorneys, um, and also my experience. I've had a lot of, you know, I'm not going to say personal friends, but a lot of my constituents have passed away from fentanyl overdoses, and many of them didn't even realize that fentanyl was in the drugs that they were taking. You know, I do believe that drug abuse is, you know, a disease that people, you know, are caught on and they can't let go. And my goal is not to target those users, not to target those people who are suffering from this, um, the abuse, drug abuse. My goal is to target the people who are trafficking the drugs into our communities, the people who are selling or, or transferring the, the drugs into our communities and oftentimes putting fentanyl in them without people even knowing. So that is my goal with this bill. I'm not trying to get our poor guys out there who are suffering from drug abuse. I'm trying to get the bad guys out there who are giving it to them. So last year we passed legislation that uh, legalized the fentanyl testing strips, mm-hmm. right? Correct. So that is, uh, that's in place. That's, that's correct. That's law at this point. So this is kind of the, the next step. Just right. enhancing the penalties for right. those that are trafficking in this um, this deadly substance. That's correct. And, you know, that's a good. I do I do want us to make sure people are more aware of that about the fentanyl testing strips. A lot of times, people thought that they could catch a precursor charge or something like that with its strips. I think we need to do a public awareness. We are not, you know, we're not saying it's okay to do drugs, but. I want these people to understand that there's a way to make sure that the drugs you are using does not contain a deadly substance that could kill you in seconds. Yeah, makes total sense. Let's pivot a bit to uh, education. So it's our understanding that you're working on an open enrollment bill. Is that correct? That's correct. That is correct. So I know the speaker has um, spoken about that. I, I authored the bill either last year or year before last. We got it out of the education committee and ended up dying on the calendar. So right now the way it's set up, if you are a public school student and you want to transfer from one public school district to another public school district, that receiving district has to accept you. They have to say, we have room. We'll be glad to take you. Your state money can follow you. We're good to go. They have an ability to charge tuition and make up for that ad valorem. You know, if they're not paying city or county taxes, school district taxes, we want to let them pay a little bit. But the horrible thing about our law right now that I totally disagree with is that sending school district, the school district wherein the child's trying to leave, they have the ability to just veto that. Yeah. They have the ability to hold that child back and say, no, you're not going anywhere. You're staying right here. I 100% disagree with that. So my goal is to eliminate the ability of the sending school district to veto a child or parent's decision to move to a new school district. Okay. Um, and we're putting some standards in place, of course. The receiving school district, you know, that we have a lot of schools that have a lot of kids that may not have capacity, that have capacity issues. So we're going to try and work on, you know, some standards as far as what they can do to deny it. But the main goal right now is to make sure that schools aren't they are literally holding kids back and make sure they're not able to do that so explain to the audience the the uh, sending school if you will uh, that approval uh, does that require the uh, school board's approval or the school superintendent the principal who who actually authorizes it? well it's not very clear well that's what i thought that's why i asked you <laughs> it's not extremely clear all we know is they get a letter and say no you're not going okay that's <laughs> we'll that's, see you in class at 8 a.m <laughs> and that's pretty common uh, to the point where almost nobody uh, tries to do it that's correct that's yeah. correct okay so public to public uh is something you're working on uh, how do you feel about public-to-private ESAs? Where do you stand on that? You know, I, 
I'm not really opposed to it to the extent that, you know, I, I love to see that parents have a choice to educate their children. Um, they get to have their options. The one issue, you know, we're looking at, you know, Arizona and Arkansas recently just did that. Their programs became extremely expensive. I think Arkansas is approaching $400 million. Arizona is around the same. 600 I think, last I saw, 590 Yep. So, and then, you know, Arizona had a $2 billion surplus, and somehow they turned that around in a year to a $400 million mm-hmm. deficit. Um, we have a lot of a lot of things on the table this session per a PERS crisis more specifically. Um, I am worried about where we would find the money, but I'm not opposed to it in principle. Well, and and so I think a lot of the problems, especially in, in Arizona, is that they have universal ESAs. And I'm not saying that's a problem. I'm just saying that the, the financial reality is even those who presently have their kids in private schools could apply Correct. and receive the vouchers. And so that's money the state wasn't actually spending uh, before such legislation went into effect. So I I think what I'm asking here, just to see what you think about um, certain qualified public school students that are presently in public school receiving an ESA that they could use to defray tuition costs in a private school. Oh, yeah. So you're not talking about universal. You're right. saying, yeah, I'm okay with that. Okay. You know, look at our special needs program. I think our special Same needs thing. ESA program is doing great. Expanding on that, you know, moving into maybe outside of special needs into, you know, children who might be trying to look to um, go into different types of career paths, you know, not college. You know, I- I'm totally okay, okay. with that. That, absolutely. Well, I'd like to see us work towards universal ESA, but I understand the concerns about the uh, the financial uh, uh, challenges there that need to be considered. And w- what I'm getting impression from the speaker is kind of a kind of a phasing in, if you will. Is that that's, is that the signal he's sending to the house? That's exactly right. And, you know, this public to public, the you know charter schools, it's all part of a, a you know it's all part of the school choice plan. You know, we're Republicans, we're conservatives. It's in our platform, yeah. and it's been in our platform for a long time, so it shouldn't be a surprise that this is something we want to do. But I do appreciate the speakers. You know, he's looking at other states, common sense. We can't force it right now all the way, but phasing it in, absolutely. Uh, can you stay around? For absolutely. We got uh, Representative Jansen Owen in the Element Well studio. I want to chat with you about uh, maybe some legislation you're working on with respect to charter schools as well. Right? Yes, sir. We'll we'll talk about that in PERS if you want to dig in up into oh, that a little bit. We'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming right back in the Elevate Well studio with Representative Jansen Owen. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Representative Jansen Owen. And so before we went to break there, Representative Owen, we were discussing some of the legislation you're working on with respect to uh, school choice. That's correct. We talked about the public-to-public option as one that right now is virtually impossible uh, to secure if you if you have a child that's in a public school that uh, seeks to transfer to another public school the uh, the public school they're presently enrolled in that they're attached to based on their address uh, makes it really difficult if not impossible for them to get the, the permission the pr- approval the authorization to move over and you're working on some legislation that would uh, um, sort of change that that's correct make that process somewhat easier that's correct you know parents you know people have different lives, different, you know, schedules. You've got a parent who might have to wake up at 6 o'clock and drive 35 miles to, you know, work in the ER at a hospital in a rural community. Yeah. It'll be – it's easier for that parent to throw that kid in the car and maybe drop them off at the school. Makes know, sense. By their work. So Makes sense. Okay. And then we talked about uh, possible public-to-private situation. You said that you could support that if a child is presently enrolled in a public school and – and they're looking to make a change. You think the private school would be a, a better environment? Uh, the, the parents, the caretakers, and the child, uh, they could access the state monies, mm-hmm. some or all of that, that's allocated to the public school to use as a voucher to offset the cost of tuition in the private school. Um, you're on board with that. You're not quite ready for the universal ESAs. You're seeing what's happening, and you cited Arkansas and Arizona in particular, where even those which presently have children in private schools could access the monies that are going to those uh, – actually, that are going to the public school on their behalf, even though they're not there. Right. You know, really if, what's happening. He, I, I did some math when we were working on this. If you look at the children in public schools right now in Mississippi and you gave the state funding amount, the, the per-pupil funding amount to just the children who are currently in private schools, you're knocking on $300 million dollars. Yeah. Mississippi. You know, um, to some extent, uh, it's what I've said on the program before, the private schools, if you think about it, actually subsidize the public schools. If you shut down every private school in the state of Mississippi such that they those those students then enrolled in the public schools, it would overwhelm the public schools. That's right. That's right. And, you know, even some private schools have come and said we're opposed to universal. Basically, they don't want to be told what to do, which I support. I agree them. with that, too. You know, they feel like the money's going to come down, and, you know, it's government. Yeah. Government's always got strings attached to something. Yeah. Um, so even some of our private schools are opposed to it. So I think the best bet is to to do what we're doing and what I believe the speaker is trying to do is to uh, piecemeal into bringing more choice to our parents in the state. And I think that's a good plan in my opinion. I think definitely easing the process and and the barriers for the public to public at a minimum seems like we can coalesce around that. Absolutely. I can't imagine why somebody would be opposed to telling a school they they don't have control over a child. You can't just, you know, grab them and keep them there. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about charter schools. What you got going on there? Yeah, so, you know, and we're 10 years now that um, since the legislature passed the charter school program, I think we have a handful of charter schools approved. Um, <clears throat> one big thing recently that happened, the SR1 was approved um, in, I believe it was Hines County. Um, and in that situation, the school ended up opening with maybe a dozen students in a gymnasium um, on a church campus. 
that's not allowed. You got to have they they projected 100 or 150 students. They opened with 12. You know, and we have people in place who are responsible for making sure that these charter schools that are opening are opening like they're supposed to. Um, so there was definitely a failure somewhere in the system there. Um, I do see, you know, some of our testing and all of that stuff. I think that we are in a position right now where our charter schools are kind of being put in an unfair advantage. I want to do some reforms here and there that's going to allow, you know, some transparency in the program um, and, and make sure that we can bring um, charter schools into some communities. I believe charter schools are a win. They're, you know, they're, pub, they're pu- public schools. Yeah. Um, they're creative public schools, but they're public schools. Um, right now, they're only allowed in DNF districts. I would like to bring that down to C districts with a three-year look back. Um, if you've been a C, D, or F district in the last three years, you're okay. open to you know getting charter, school. charter schools. I also would like to expand who can authorize charter schools. Right now, only our um, state authorizer board is allowed to authorize charter schools. And we've struggled getting them to authorize charter schools, despite the fact that some really solid applications have have been submitted. I think we're averaging like 1.3 a year. Yeah. You know, so it must be really, um, really intense application process. An application process that we really don't know too much about because they think that they're not subject to the Open Meetings Act. Um, So I want to bring some transparency. I want some written procedures as to why a school or as to how a school can be approved. Um, And then I want our community colleges and universities to have the ability to authorize charter schools. Um, One other thing I'd like to do is if, you know, if you're a charter school focused on special needs or special kind of like our our special needs voucher program, if you're a charter school focusing on special needs, you can go into any district. We were talking in the break about how our public schools, they hurt for, you know, the ability to. Um, focus on some of our special needs students. And I think that's a great program to have schools focused on educating our autistic students, our dyslexic students. Um, They need more attention than sometimes we can provide. So I hope that we can do some work with that. Yeah, and and something else that occurs is we we have a fair number of students, I mean, this is not unique to Mississippi, that have experienced some sort of trauma in their young lives. And it's really disruptive. It makes it difficult for them to learn in a more traditional sort of classroom setting. They need some specialized uh, care and instruction and attention as well. There are studies that say that trauma at a young age impacts a child's ability to do something as little as go to the bathroom or wash their hands. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Trauma. And look at the number of kids we have in CPS custody right now. You know, the babies that are there right now. Um, they are suffering. Sad. And we got to have, you know, we got to think about that. You know, we, de- we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach when we have children, when we have babies um, in foster care and suffering a lot. So yeah. I agree with you on that. The, uh, we have a fine organization here, Canopy Children's Solutions, that does a great job with that. I mean, that's their, their primary uh, portfolio of services is, is addressing those, those children. And uh, some of the stories that we hear coming out of there, I mean, they, they absolutely break your heart. They do great work there. Uh, they, but what they have figured out, and, and, and so has that, that just practice in general, is uh, effective therapies. Mm-hmm. To, to get the children uh, stable and to get them to where they can return to normal life in their families and in the classroom, et cetera, and then and grow up to be productive adults. But you but you got to get it when that's happening, and that's awesome. But that shouldn't just be limited in Jackson. Totally agree. You know, we got to be able to have an ability. You know, and we have wonderful public schools who do great work in the state and our public educators. Um, but 
I like to expand options for everybody. So okay. hopefully we can um, work on that moving forward. You know, this is another one of those issues, I think you would agree, Representative Owen, where the House has kind of a different attitude towards this than the Senate does. Is, you know, you could look at the ballot initiative, tax reform, this this education choice. I mean, it, it just seems like we have uh, kind of this, this conflict between what uh, the folks in the House generally uh, support and what uh, those in the Senate do. What, where do you think this is going to go in the Senate? You got any thoughts about that? I, you know, I don't know. I haven't had discussion with any of my Senate colleagues. I know that they're all extremely open-minded, and um, we've gotten stuff passed that we didn't. You know, <laughs> there have been many occasions where running into a session, the Senate was opposed, and the House was for, or vice versa, and we've ended up coming together and passing some good pieces of legislation. The founders made us bicameral for a reason, so. I feel like we can work on it over the next few weeks and months, and hopefully we can do some good stuff. Let's talk about another very thorny issue, something I've talked about quite a bit on the program, wrote an article about, you may have seen, is PERS. Oh, um, Well, and you know, no easy answers there. You know, the fact is we have an obligation to retirees and active members as well in the program. But we got some financial challenges. We absolutely do. You know, I get emails and text messages from my retirees in my district a lot. And, you know, my response generally is, well, here's the problem. I don't know what the solution is yet. I'm trying to figure it out. You you voted for me to, you know, make these tough calls, these tough decisions. I'm doing the best I can. But here's the problem. You read this, and I think I actually send them your article um, or Toby's article, or somebody's yeah. article, I send them, you know, so they understand the issues that we're facing. Yeah. You know, you may not want us to do anything with it, but if we don't do anything, it won't be a sustainable program. These older members who are 80 to 90, to, you know, we've got, I think, 30-something people who are like 110 years old on the over a, Over 100, I think, yeah. Yeah. So we've got a lot of stuff we've got to work on with that. So. Yeah. Well, I think the good news here, uh, there is that I'm hearing legislators say, yeah, we got to do something. And Absolutely. I can't remember the last time I heard anybody even talk about it. It will be politically unpopular, but that ain't the first time I voted for something that was politically unpopular. It's going to be right. I understand. But. Absolutely. Well, appreciate you coming in, Representative Jansen. Oh, thank you, Gerard. Always a yeah. good time. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Don't forget, we got Representatives Fred Shanks and Price Wallace at 11.05. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Someone here on the ceasefire text line that has sent us a book. We do not know the name of this person. That's fine. You know that you can send us a text and not reveal your name. But if you would like us to mention it on the air, just include that in your text. And we'll update our contact database here to include it. So every time you send a text, we'll know who you are. 
601-879-4395. That is, in fact, the ceasefire text line. Let's see. School choice, dead on arrival. Worst idea possible. Will be as successful as charters. Unmitigated failure. I do approve of the fentanyl bill. Well, we disagree on that. And so this would be a person who favors that a student should be restricted to attend the school which is assigned to their physical address. That's what that means. And school choice would offer options so that the student and uh, the parents, the caretakers of the student, could choose the best education setting, the one in which they feel the student would thrive the most in and perform the best in. Special needs vouchers which don't require receiving schools to offer services. Pure genius from our legislators. Jumping on purrs again. Same person. Wow, all out assault on public education day. Super tall. What exactly does that mean? You mean like my daughter who's a teacher? I'm assaulting my daughter? What a fool. And my numerous other friends who serve the state so well in education? Just because we talk about a program that has significant financial challenges that needs to be addressed so it remains available. That's what people never get about this, Rhino. You start talking about it, you're trying to get rid of PERS. No, we're trying to save it. Why don't they get that? Same with Social Security and Medicare. You bring it up, you're trying to get rid of my Social Security and Medicare. No, we're trying to make sure it's there. It ain't just magic. Oh, my gosh. I know I get fired up. I apologize for that. But to accuse us of attacking teachers simply because we point out, just as you heard Representative Owen say, and every other representative that's been here in here that we've talked about it, do we have a problem in purse from a financial perspective? Yes, we do. Are we going to have to address that? Yes, we are. Yeah. And, and all those who are extremely smart and well-versed in public pension-defined benefit plans, they have been sounding the alarm. Third parties have. Hey, you guys at PERS there in Mississippi, if you don't do something, this thing is going to crumble. It's going to fail. And you know what happens then? You get nothing. What did Sergeant Schultz say? I know nothing. I know. I tell you what, it was Judge Swales, <laughs> Snails, pardon me, in um, Caddyshack when he was talking to his grandson Spalding. I want one of these and one of those and one of these. Remember that in Pro Shop? And he says, you'll get nothing and like it. That's kind of where we are here with PERS. You can either get on board with taking the appropriate action to preserve the program or do nothing, in which case you're going to end up with nothing. That's the way it works. Unbelievable. What has it got to do with teachers? They keep bringing up teachers having a decent retirement. No. It's what happens when you hear one or two words and you don't have your thinking cap on, but you let those words go in one ear and out the other, and it gets you riled up. So you're no longer thinking logically. You're thinking with emotion. Unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Oh, boy. In regard to PERS, it's two on the ceasefire tax line. Would it make any difference if they did like Social Security and based your benefits off your 25 years instead of your highest four years? 
Um, that's actually not how Social Security works. It's 35 years of a worker's indexed earnings. It's a little bit more calculated. No. So what you're talking about is changing the benefit structure. No. Uh, the only So, look, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I've said it a thousand times. I think Rhino would attest to that. you got three options. You've got to have more coming in, less going out, or a combination of the two. It's really that simple. So, sure, you can adjust benefits. And, by the way, you probably find yourself in court if you did that. And the state would lose in my opinion, in that scenario. But now, if you're talking about a new tier for all those coming into the program, brand new, young folks, and you want to change the way benefits are calculated and determined and change the contribution model as well, sure, you could do that. Would that fix the problem? Nope. A lot of people think it would. Why is that? Because all the people presently receiving benefits and all the other people in the other four tiers, this would be a tier five if they created a new one, they are going to argue, of course, that they're entitled and they're right, in my view, to what they signed up for. Just take the – say we don't hire another person in the state. Just take that group, that set of people. The four tiers paying in, all the people receiving benefits out. That has to be fixed. There ain't enough money coming in to pay what's going out. That's, it's just over the long term. You need a bunch of money to solve that problem over the long term. Not saying it's in immediate danger at risk of not being able to make its benefit payments today. That's not the case. But over the long term, Fox News, Super Talk News next. And And now, now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Less than two weeks, Rhino. We're going to be down at the Gulf Coast Coliseum to see Journey and Toto. Looking forward to that. They're kicking off their 2024 Freedom Tour in the great state of Mississippi. How fantastic is that? We welcome to the program now uh, representatives uh, Fred Shanks and Price Wallace. Uh, Representative Shanks serves Rankin County. He is also this year the chair of the House Rules Committee. Representative Price Wallace. Serves Rankin in Simpson County. Serves as a chair of the House Constitution Committee. Morning there, gentlemen. Thanks for coming in. Absolutely. Glad Good to be morning. Here. Great to be here. Well, so you guys have been busy already there, Representative uh, Wallace, with filing this uh, concurrent resolution to reinstate the ballot initiative process here in the state of Mississippi. We've been without one for a couple of years now, so yeah. trying to get that thing uh, reignited passed the House and headed to the Senate. It did. Over in the Senate. Yeah, it did. Um, Yeah, you know, that was one of the main things that I believe most everybody on the campaign trail, one of the questions that was asked of the the, uh, members was, when are we going to get our ballot initiative back? Yeah. And I do know that, uh, you know, the Speaker uh, made comments several times. You know, that would be one of the first things out, out, out the gate. So... Um, when he handed out all the chairmanships, uh, and I was put on Constitution, and he told me, it's, we need to get something moving. So I'm, yeah. 
got busy. And my uh, colleague, Representative Shanks, and I um, went back and pulled up the original bill from 2022 and went over it and um, made some tweaks here and there and changed some things. And, and w- I know that the gentleman from Hines said we brought out a Ford Pinto, but let me <laughs> say this. He did. Yes, he, he sure he did. did say it. He, he and could have went with a different car. That's but, right. You know. That's right. But let, let me say this. You know, uh, when you find a diamond, it's dirty. Now, when you start polishing it, it becomes shiny. So, and uh, we're, 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 with some yeah. polish, we're yeah. going to get a, a, a gem out of this. Yeah. I'm going to steal that, too. Man. I like it, man. So, um, I, and I read, I read his comments as well. But I never really saw anything specific. I mean, are there some specific objections and concerns? Is it the restriction to not allow a measure on the ballot uh, that would deal with the abortion issue? Is that is that what's on his mind? What, I, I, mean? I believe that was the main issue. Okay. And, you know, as far as that particular item goes, the reason – that we wanted in there. One re- main reason I wanted in there was, uh, you know, that unborn child does not have a voice. This ballot initiative gives that unborn child that voice. So, uh, you know, if if, we, if we're going to talk about both sides of the issue, you know, women's rights, which I support that 100 percent, have nothing against that. What about that unborn child? So that's where that's the reason that was in there to speak up for that unborn child. Yeah. Well, I'll also have to say that I, I've heard anecdotally that, um, that there are some those of those in the Senate who, in the past, have opposed uh, this process, these these resolutions to reinstate the ballot initiative measure. For that reason, they've used that as as kind of a justification for opposing it that it would allow say, maybe some big out-of-state group to come in here and get a measure on the ballot. We've seen this happen in numerous other states that would expand abortion rights and kind of undo what Mississippi's already done after the the, uh, Dobbs decision. And so this also sort of eliminates uh, that objection as well. You bring up a good point. While we were working on the bill, we find out that uh, in the Northeast, I can't remember what state it was. It may have been Maine, but they spent, or a group came in and spent $54 million on exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, the House position, the majority of the House, I mean, we've been fighting this battle for 10, 12 years now. You know, we've got Roe, we overturned Roe versus Wade. You know, all that came out of the, the or the genesis of it, it came out of the House. So mm-hmm. we, we were like, no, we're not budging on that. And, yeah. and to be quite honest with you, uh, Price and myself, I mean, we had several colleagues come up to us, and had that not been in, in, in the <clears throat> the resolution, I mean, we, we might not have had the votes to pass it. Well, I, th- I think that's right, and, and again, I would say that this uh, this eliminates that objection coming out of the Senate. Because, and the reason I, I think they've kind of hung their hat on that, and they've pointed to that as a reason for not supporting it. I don't think that's the real reason. I think the real reason is they just, in general, don't support it. It, it, the it could, idea, the concept. Yeah, and you yeah. know, I mean, even some of our colleagues, um, you know, they view it as, look, we're a republic, and we are elected by our people to represent them. Sure. So it's, it's certainly different philosophies. Yeah, and I don't want to paint a broad uh, stroke over the entire Senate. I know there's some in the Senate that, that do support this, Correct. but but I think in general, uh, that that's where it died last time in the past. So uh, you know, and and the other thing, uh, we did Representative prices. Uh, you guys. Um, it, included a different formula 
for determining the number of signatures required. We did. Uh, you know, the old, the, uh, the original bill, I think, was 12% of the registered voters that voted in the last gubernatorial election. Right. All right. So the last gubernatorial election, what, but 821,000 people voted. Right. And about 12% of that is 98,500 votes, I think. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we took it and changed it to 8% of the registered voters in the last gubernatorial election. Not, I mean, it didn't mean... As, it, as of the last As of the last... Yeah. Right. doesn't mean you had to necessarily vote. You just was a registered voter. Yeah. So uh, at 8%, and you have to include active, and there's inactive. There's yeah. about 152,600 inactive. So total registered voters as of right now, 283,460. So 8% of that signatures would be 166,676. Yeah. And then uh, I know the congressional district was a question, and the way this bill is worded is whatever congressional districts at the present time. Yeah. And the reason we've done that uh, was I'm hoping with these new industries that's locating here in Mississippi, our population is going to rise. So we might get the 5th Congressional District back. But anyhow, this formula fluctuates with the uh, up and down of it, the rest of voters. That's right. It, protect, it protects against any changes in Congressional Districts um, uh, once the amendment is inserted that's in the Constitution. Correct. And that's a departure from what exists now where it explicitly says five Congressional yeah. Districts, which is what blew the whole thing up. That's yeah. right. Supreme yeah. Court to, to uh, essentially... Uh, negate it and invalidate what we had in the Constitution. Although our yeah. Constitution says you're supposed to have a ballot initiative process, yeah, so right. this work is to restore that. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's where we are, uh, and we've had some, I think, some changes in uh, Senate leadership as well with respect to the committees that would be uh, taking this up, coming over from the House. Yeah, have you I, heard any feedback I, on that? I, at this I, point? I don't even know if the Senate has even done any committee work yet. Okay, uh, I talked to. Uh, my colleague on the other end of chambers, uh, Senator Barry, yesterday evening, mm-hmm. and uh, I, as far as I know, that the Senate hadn't even started any committee work. Okay, uh, so I can't say just yet. I'm, I'm hoping next week they're going to start taking up these bills that we've sent down and uh, and get this moving. I think that the number of signatures, as you know, was the big sticking point in the past. At least that was mm-hmm. what was represented by numerous senators. Um, and as I recall, what they sought was 12% of registered voters. This resolution calls for 8%. The one that you guys worked on in the House and sent over there a couple of years ago kept it the same at 12% of those who voted in the last, most recent gubernatorial right. election. So you have uh, have essentially changed that to increase the number of signatures required. I think that maybe still comes in a little less than what the Senate really wanted, but it seems like a reasonable compromise. Well, Fred and I felt like if we could get you know, close to what they want it, maybe not all the way, but give them a little bit more meat on the bone. Start talking. Yeah, well, it'd be be better. Yeah. So, uh, and there's one other thing that we've yeah. done was it's the the old uh, bill had five initiatives that could be on the ballot at one time. Okay, we lowered that to three. 
Yeah, five's too uh, many. Yeah. It, it gets confusing to the voters. Yeah. If you if you get that many initiatives on the ballot and they're trying to figure out, you know, do I vote for this one? Do not I don't vote for this and, it, and it's just confusing. So we felt like three would be a better uh threshold for you know, what could be allowed on the ballot. Yeah, especially when you consider what um our laws require as far as what has to be included uh, on the ballot to describe and yes. and kind of support uh, the the measure being proposed here, right, that's right. especially mm-hmm. if there's any any uh, funding required, you've got to include like the source of funding. That's, right. So, that's right. so you start looking at five of those, your head hurts. You don't know what the heck to vote. <laughs> and you know what happens? A lot of people just don't vote. That's true. Yeah, yeah. just we've seen just that. Take before. a walk. That's right. Yeah. We, uh, you guys hang around. We'll talk about sure, some other sure. stuff. Absolutely. Right. We got representatives Fred Shanks and Price Wallace in the Element Well Studio. We're coming right back. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're chatting with Representatives Fred Shanks and Price Wallace. We've been talking about the uh, current resolution that would reestablish the ballot initiative in the state of Mississippi. That was authored by Representative Price Wallace and also co-authored by Representative Shanks, Representative Calvert, Boyd, McGuire. So this thing is over in the Senate now. You guys passed it. Um, you, you had a little pushback, probably a little more than pushback, certainly from the other side of the aisle, uh, but it's in the Senate hands. Now, we had a question that I chatted with you guys offline about. This from Ben from Madison. Could you ask them if the local language would prevent a ballot initiative that would legalize wine and grocery stores, mobile sports betting, or further reform of marijuana laws? I've yet to get an answer to that I, I don't think so. I mean, it, it, what it says is to propose any new law or amend or repeal any existing law relating to the, uh, let's say, to propose any new law or special law or amend or repeal any existing local or special law. So I guess um, what that comes down to, Ben, is whether or not if a ballot uh, measure or ballot uh, measure, right, went to the ballot uh, to allow the sale of wine in grocery stores on a statewide basis, I don't see how necessarily that would conflict with municipal or county. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It you know, it wouldn't make sense to do it on a local level. Yeah. You know. But yeah, 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 if it was a statewide, yeah. And tell and, and Ben also if you're listening, just hang with mm-hmm. us on that sports betting. We might have something for yeah. you coming up. I'm hearing that as well. <laughs> so and I don't know that that's necessarily a conflict with any with any local laws there. I don't think it would be or impose any any measures on municipalities. I mean that would be a statewide that's map, right. So another uh, thing that yeah. we, that we took care of was this is not a constitutional amendment. 
it's statute. That's right. So that way, if something you know is not working right, we can go in there and make a change in statute. Yeah. You know, that was the problem with the other ballot. It was it went into the Constitution, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, so you just had you'd have a hard time trying to go in there and change something on the Constitution. But, and that was something that a lot of folks. Uh, didn't really care for with respect to Initiative 65, which would have established a medical marijuana program in the state, is that uh, that entire text of that law essentially would have been inserted into the Constitution. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I I talked to a bunch of those groups, and when it was all said and done, and, you know, we ended up doing the program anyway, um, I mean, they were even like, uh, probably wasn't a good idea to have a, you know, a drug in the Constitution, because once it's in there, that's right. But once it's in there, it's it's not coming out. Well, and we got to go back to the people to that's put right. something on the ballot for the people to vote on to amend it or change it. That's right. Which is a, just a completely different um, situation and process than than uh, changing statute, amending statute. So yeah. a good point that uh, Representative Wallace makes is that this would change that that entire process and approach so that uh, those citizen-initiated ballot measures would essentially make or amend state or repeal possibly state statute and not amend the Constitution. That's right. And, and we actually saw that when the we did do a medical marijuana program. I mean, we immediately had to come out the next year and tweak it, and yeah. it, it, not just on our side, but with the industry side, too, because it was a new program. You know, some things just needed needed a little work. So yeah. that's just that's a smart thing to add in there. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see where this goes at this point. Um, I think this is something that seems to be just wildly popular. I mean, I suspect yeah. both of you gentlemen hear this from your constituents. Hey, we, when are we going to get this thing back? And not that they necessarily have anything in mind that they want to go out and support, get on the ballot. They just feel like it's something that's taken away from them, and generally people won't, don't like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I have I have one constituent. I mean, right when we started a session, he sent me an email with his top four <laughs> items that he wanted, you know. And number two was ballot initiative. So. <laughs> well, I uh, appreciate you guys working on it, and, and we kind of had a, a false start. I know last time, mm-hmm. Representative Shanks, you were chair of this committee, the Constitution Committee, that now Representative uh, Wallace chairs. And you and I talked about it on the show yeah. and, and quite a bit at that time and just couldn't get anything done That's over right. the Senate. Well, I feel, feel a lot more optimistic this, okay. this year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what else are, are you guys working on? Um, I, well, I – I'm just digging in. I, like you mentioned, I'm the new rules chairman, so yeah. I'm just really kind of taking in there. Uh, you know, got quite a bit of of, of Rankin County stuff that we're working on, some okay. big projects, things Good. like that. And, uh, um, you know, I'm still thinking about doing my umpire bill. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm working on that. And, uh, you know, outside of that, I mean, like you've already said, the past uh, two weeks, you know, we've had these humongous uh, billion-dollar economic development plans. And, I mean, so, you know, that's just taking up a lot of time. But we still got a lot of big things coming. So yeah. We're going to have a big session. What's uh, – I mean, so I was pleased to see that on both of these big economic development projects that uh, both the House and the Senate uh, passed these packages in, in really short order. I mean, very swift and – Overwhelming support. Had a couple of uh, opponents in each chamber, but in general, these things went through. It's real hard to argue with. Uh, you know, that's your <clears throat> that's your background. Yeah. And you know, when MDA came over and Mr. Cork, uh, you know, gave us a presentation on both of them. I mean, you, you, there's there's just no downside yeah. to it. I mean, it's it, is it perfect? Maybe not perfect, but I mean, 
you know, uh, states are just doing anything they can to get either one of these companies in. So we got we got lucky too. There's a lot of hard work done behind the scenes, I know, and it and it took a long time, but uh, you know, well played. No doubt, Representative Wallace. You heard any feedback from your constituents concerning these two big projects? Or has there been any talk about that I, in your district? I have not. You know, other than they're excited to you know business is, is coming to Mississippi. Yeah, and I'm I'm uh, ex- I'm looking forward to some more. I'm yeah. sure there's some more. Yeah down the pipeline that we hadn't heard about that, that's being worked on. Phone's already ringing. That's, uh, you know, Simpson yeah. County is open for business, I'll yeah. put it that uh, yeah. The entire state is, yeah. and, and we got so many great locations across the state to uh, set up shop and, and make a significant capital investment. We got uh, a great workforce. We've done a lot of work in Absolutely. that area as well, and you, I applaud the legislature, the governor, everybody involved in, in really stepping up the efforts to, to upskill our workforce and, and get us prepared to take on these uh, new generation of jobs. Yeah. Representative Bell was on this morning with Gallo yeah. talking about workforce development and you know and and how that has played into a lot of these industries wanting to come here. Yeah. Because uh, you know, the, the workforce is, is being developed and uh as he's I think he said he met with Nissan yesterday and they had nothing but positive things to say about uh you know what's coming out of our high schools, junior colleges that's uh workforce ready. I yeah. mean they can hit the ground running. Uh, so, you know, it's it's just exciting times right here in Mississippi right now. Yeah. I mean, it solves a big problem for yeah. these guys. So something I've said on the program before, you guys probably heard me, is that uh, the community university. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We need, we need that across yeah. the state. I mean, I, we need I, that exact yeah. thing replicated yeah. across the state. I, I mean, I think about it quite often, but I, I wish this was around in 1996 when I was getting out of, <laughs> out of high school. I mean, it's There's some great opportunities. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic. Then, but uh, to your point earlier, um, you know, we've heard that w- when these two big projects landed, it, it, it went to the top of all these corporations. They're like, hey, what is going on in Mississippi? Yeah. And why why don't our people know about it? You know, they found out. So, uh, you know, it's just created a lot more interest in that, you know, in that world, yeah, no doubt. Take, uh, take it notice, and I and I agree with you, Representative Wallace. That uh, we're we're going to see some outgrowth as a result of this. We're going to see some, I think, businesses look to locate here in the state of Mississippi that really we weren't even on their yeah. radar. And uh, both of these projects, I think, if have, have placed us squarely in their crosshairs, is a good place to make an investment and and uh, set up shop. So, and I've heard nothing but positive feedback from the companies as yep. well. Good, their That's experience great. in working with uh, MDA, and I'll I'll just point out that that this really gets gets started. It gets anchored at the local level, and the local teams are are critical to that, getting this. And absolutely. then, of course, they engage with MDA and the governor's office and. And uh, and then ultimately the legislature and working as a team, we end up with a really good That's outcome right. here. Got, got to have that groundwork. Yeah, it's going to be unbelievable. Um, let's see anything else you guys are are working on. I know I've, I've beat the PERS issue up to death. I know you guys know we got to do something there. I think everybody is on board and anxious to hear yeah. sort of what the suggestions, what the plans are. But uh, at least we're starting to talk about it. That's right. I'm looking. I'm looking at. Um, Possibly, a, a person that's committed a nonviolent crime, you know, but is, is a felon. Yeah, has served their time. It's possibly out there working, maybe have a family, but they got this conviction on their record. Yeah, I'm talking with some members across the aisle about maybe expunging that record uh, after, say, a five year grace period of being clean. Yeah, and put them folks back as working, voting citizens. 
and a contributor to the state of Mississippi. Good. I think it's something we really ought to look at. Good. Uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, if, if, if they're behaving, like you said, and they're clean and, and they've been reformed and they're, they're truly uh, motivated to work and contribute to society, we shouldn't have yeah, obstacles absolutely. in the way of them. Yeah. Yeah. Representative Fred Shanks and Price Wallace, really appreciate you guys coming in. Appreciate Anytime. you. And Thanks enjoy it. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Who draws the crowd and plays so loud, baby? It's the guitar man. Who's gonna steal the show? You know, baby, it's the guitar man. That's the great David Gates and Brett. That would be my favorite Brett song, by the way. <laughs> Let's see on the ceasefire text line. Someone asked a question I'm looking for here, uh, Rhino, about uh, PERS. Yeah, here we go. <clears throat> Is uh, the same person that asked about the Social Security benefit calculation versus the PERS benefit calculation. And that That's really not the fundamental problem. We certainly, as I said, could change that for any folks that come into the system uh, any new folks that come into the system, the, the problem we have is those that are currently in the system as active members contributing to their future retirement and those receiving benefits out, we still have to honor those obligations. That's what is not fully funded over a long period of time. If you look at the actuarial reports, they typically will cast that out to 47 and if you look at that, it amounts to about a $23 billion unfunded liability. So there's a question. Is there a way you could explain how the state could move to a 401K type of retirement for state employees instead of a pension plan? Is it even possible to fund both at the same time until those with a pension were no longer around? So that's a good question. And what you're really talking about there is, is uh, I discussed in the article, is the, the distinction between the two uh, types of, of pension plans, the defined benefit plan, that's what PERS is, and the defined contribution plan, that's what a traditional 401k plan is. The The easy difference is that in a defined benefit plan such as, such as PERS, you receive benefits as long as you're alive. Once you enter the benefit phase and you and begin receiving payments from the system, those continue until you're deceased. In a defined contribution plan, such as a 401k plan, you keep up with the amount in that plan because you know that once you retire and you start drawing out of it, once you've drawn all the money out, you're done. You may still be living and have years remaining, but you only get out what you put in plus the investment income that's been added to it while you've been contributing to it, or even while you're drawing out of it. You Until you draw it all out, you're still 
producing some return, some um, investment return that is adding to it, uh, the, the amount in the plan. So, yeah, you certainly could do that for anybody new coming into the system. does not solve the problem for everybody currently in the system. If you were to convert everybody currently in the system under the four tiers that are active, you just would change that game to a defined contribution plan, you'd be in court, in my view, and you would lose. I mean, you would just completely up in what they've been contributing to and what they expect when they retire, which is which your lifetime benefits, which is what a defined benefit plan is. It is true that several years ago, many large private corporations, which also had defined benefit plans, they saw the writing on the wall that these things were not sustainable, and they did, in fact, begin to convert um, everybody that is at a certain uh, point in their career, number of years away from retirement, uh, and they took a one-time charge to fund everybody else currently receiving benefits or those within striking distance. D- different companies had had different um, different plans here to to fund their retirement, and so you just carved that that group of employees out. Those retired current currently getting benefits under the old plan. Those that were close to it, and by close I mean it could be like ten years. You're within ten years of retirement. And your money uh, for all those that were beyond that would just would just be essentially transferred to a defined contribution plan, typical 401k type plan. But there's a big one-time charge to cover future benefits and future expenses. I remember distinctly the year AT&T did that, and, and it was a, a gigantic one-time write-off that they just took. State governments aren't in the same position to do that. It's a little different situation. And by the way, they got a legal problem. Uh, whereas these uh, these private companies, they have a lot more latitude and control over those sorts of benefits. So it's a little different, but it's a good question. David says, I'm all for school choice, but it does not take into account the receiving district's infrastructure. We've got great schools in Madison County, but if school choice across district lines went into place, we might get an extra 1,000 kids if the district isn't prepared for. How will legislation address that? It's a good question. You may recall Representative Owen when we were discussing that, and I've talked about it numerous times on the program as well. You put safeguards in that uh, ensure that receiving districts um, have capacity to accept any of those who are applying for a uh, an open enrollment, a public-to-public school transfer. You can't just, you're right, uh, David, you can't just allow uh, the schools to just be overwhelmed with a large number of students coming from, let's say, poor-performing districts that may be in close proximity to a high-performing district, and the students and their families seek to transfer to those that are, are within reasonable travel distance that perform better. Yeah, and that's exactly how Florida, Arizona, other states have done that as well. They, they uh, have determined essentially the capacity of uh, each school and each district, and there's some regulations in place that uh, that that control and just allow the transfer of a student from a school, a public school, to another public school, so that the 
uh, schools aren't overwhelmed if there is a situation like you said. So you wouldn't see a thousand kids. That's the bottom line. You wouldn't see a thousand kids transfer to Madison County. Now it it could be a situation where Madison County School District says, "Hey, look, we've got a lot of demand for what we're doing here, and because we're getting this transfer and the money's following them, we'll build more schools. We'll add classrooms onto existing schools and facilities." It, it, so that's all in play as well, is all I'm saying. But the one thing to keep in mind is is that I'm a proponent of school choice. I know no one who is a strong advocate for school choice that wants that situation, that doesn't recognize that risk. It, the, it's it's kind of like, the, honestly, the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. You don't want to hurt anything, harm anything that's performing well and working. That really solves no problem and is is unproductive. It's counterproductive, as a matter of fact. So, again, it would be doable to craft reasonable safeguards around that and uh, and just policy that prevents that sort of overwhelming situation. And honestly, in states where they have public-to-public transfer, it turns out to be a fairly small number that even apply. It's not as a lot of people feel that, oh, my gosh, the whole school is just going to apply to transfer. Most people really want to go to the schools that are closest to where they live um, for obvious reasons. But if there's some sort of situation that is is harming their uh, the quality of their education or where they feel like that the setting's not uh, not optimum, yeah, give them the choice. That's what it's all about, just to clarify. But good question. How do you get the test strips? I can't remember, Rhino. Is that – do you have to have a – can you buy that over the shelf? Over yeah, the I think counter? they're just sold at retailers. I thought so, like too. You don't have to have a, a prescription or anything for it. I, I thought so, too. Jeff in Forest County says, we ignore that we're in a bubble. Really? What bubble is that exactly, Jeff? <laughs> um, enlighten us. What bubble? What's he talking about? Who knows? Oh, he's off in his own little world. <laughs> but that's par for the course for Jeff. Jeez. Janet Miss North Mississippi says, I thought anything in the air has to be permitted by the FFA. You mean the FAA? And by the way, this was overseas, Janet. So the FAA doesn't have any purview over what happens in um, Jordan the nation of Jordan, which is where this drone attack occurred, our officials should be able to shoot the drones down just like the Chinese balloon. Yeah, they they could. The problem is, as we pointed out, and that's what's come to light, is that, unfortunately, our military identified all of our sophisticated systems, uh, this drone, as an American asset. It wasn't identified as uh, uh, being controlled by the enemy or those who intended to do harm, that we should have said, hey, you're a little too close for comfort here. You're violating the airspace over a U.S. military installation. That's only for um, U.S. military aircraft. That's a problem. So, unfortunately, there was uh, an error, I think is one way to put it, and I think we ought to see an investigation on this. And this just came to light, what, right over the last 24 or so hours, right, that we've learned this. Unbelievable. Well, we're going to step aside for a break right now. We're in the Element Well studio with David Bowie. Pump on the side of this segment. 
Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well Studio. Man, we we have somebody that is just aggrieved today <laughs> on the ceasefire text line. Sounds like neither of you know how to engage in intelligent discourse without engaging in sarcasm and hyperbole. Be better than that. You glossed over charter school problems because it does not fit your narrative. As far as PERS, research the effect of previous steps taken will resolve the issues, as I have. If you want to come on the program, if I could get permission from management to debate PERS, let's do it. Let's have a debate. Oh, yeah. By the way, I've never glossed over the performance of charter schools. In fact, I've talked about it before. Uh, It's disappointing, but I'm also... I also recognize the fact that many of the children, many of the students who transfer from public schools to charter school, they're performing poorly in the in the public school. The charter school is kind of a con- a lot of charter schools are kind of a concentration of of students that made that transfer because they were experiencing difficulties in the scenario at the public school. So the charter school doesn't have the benefit of kind of the bell curve, if you will. I'm not defending charter schools' um, poor performance. I'm concerned about it. And so are the operators of the charter schools. In particular, there have been uh, responses from Republic schools. They operate uh, Smilo Collegiate, Smilo Prep and reimagine prep in the Jackson area. They've experienced a decline. But does that mean we should just just abandon the charter school concept? I would submit that one of the reasons we're seeing these poor poor ratings coming out of charter schools is because we don't really have enough of them to produce a valid statistical sample, if you want to know the truth. We just got so few, and that's because the Charter School Authorizer Board has just not authorized a lot of charter schools. So that um, that's not accurate, what the person is saying. And again, if, if there are structural systemic issues with schools, by the way, which exist in public schools as well, that need to be addressed, I'm all for it. Absolutely all for it. It does not mean that the concept is not sound. And by the way, if the schools are performing poorly, and the parents are not happy with that, they can go back to the public school. Why aren't they doing that? Must be something to it. So they still feel like the experience is better than what they had before. I just find it humorous that the texture calls for intelligent discourse after hurling accusations and ignorant assumptions our way. Unbelievable. It's a bit hyperbolic to say we were... Assaulting the public education day on Super Talk. That's no, that's that's not hyperbole at all, is it? It's 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 totally false. And and anybody that listens to us on a regular basis, we just give it back as good as we get it. Knows that I want them all to be A's. Uh, all the charter schools, all the private schools, all the micro schools, all the home schools, all the public schools. Period. 
what whatever the path is to produce that, that's what I support. I happen to think that school choice is a critical and a vital element in achieving that goal. Simple as that. And I'm not I'm not backing down on that. They are performing poorly for the same reason they perform poorly in public school, says the person on the ceasefire text line. Well, that could be. But again, that's up to the parents and the students to make that choice. That's what's missing here. They make the choice. If they're not improving, they chose it. They want to go back, and it's the same outcome. They still have the choice rather than government dictating to them, this is where you're going. That's what's missing here. That's all that we're about here, is giving choice. Sometimes people may make choices that they feel like will improve a situation, and they don't. Guess what? That's called life. (laughs) My gosh. And then with respect to PERS, no, you don't have any solutions. Unless you've got $20 billion sitting around, you don't have a solution. Let's see here. Um, but you blame poor performance on the public schools. I didn't say that. Did I say that? No. I'm done with you, man. You don't listen. You don't pay attention. You gaslight, and you insert words in folks' mouth, and it's it's unproductive. Let's see here. Uh, what else do we have on the ceasefire text line? Ask one of the representatives, this is Paul Meridian, about HB 615. I haven't seen that one. What's that one about there, Paul? I'll see if I can look it up here while we're on the break. But uh, both of those folks are gone. I'll probably see them later on. Oh, this is the Retail Marijuana Act. Okay. Authored by, in the House, Jeffrey Harness. Huh. I'll dig into that. Um I can just tell you, again, this is anecdotal, that I don't think there's an appetite among our legislature and state lawmakers to fully enact a recreational marijuana program. Would you agree with that assertion at this point, Rhino? Yeah. Okay. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Well, we got Fox News Super Talk News. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. A little check of the market. The Dow up 52. The NASDAQ down 136. We got big tech earnings. I think Google and Microsoft slated to announce later on today. We'll see where they are. Microsoft is uh, is guiding that artificial intelligence is going to be a huge part of their business going forward. And uh, most investors expect that the thing's going to be on a run for some time. I mean, they really haven't even begun to tap the revenue and profit potential from such investments. You may have also seen that UPS, they're laying off a bunch of people. 
12,000 jobs, I believe is the number, that they have announced. And they're saying that they're utilizing artificial intelligence in their business. They're requiring their their office workers to come back to the office five days a week. I applaud them for that. They're saying that their shipping volumes, both domestically and internationally, declined in the final quarter of 2023 over the same quarter in 2022, and that they just don't need as many people. Now, they've got 85,000 in management, a total of 495,000 worldwide. Huh. So they're, they're expecting a slowdown in shipments. This is what they feel, and that their shares, by the way, this is what their CEO guided, their shares have fallen more than 8% today. They think that small package volume growth is going to be less than 1% this year. So that's not very robust growth, and they're bracing for that by shedding some staff. But they also did say they are incorporating artificial intelligence. Yeah, I'm looking at it on screen right now, down 11 bucks. That's 7.42% today. They're saying artificial intelligence is, is able to come in and, and make them considerably more efficient. They haven't said specifically that, that they're using it to replace jobs, but rather it's just improving their efficiencies, which is good news. Good stuff there. So Ben from Madison says 24 states have recreational marijuana, and that incorporates more than 52% of the population. I think it's quite popular, uh, honestly, Ben, and I've thought for some time that a ballot initiative would likely pass in Mississippi. Uh, it, uh, maybe not by a lot, but I think as time has progressed, attitudes towards that have changed. I kind of have mixed feelings about it, honestly. You know, I understand the the uh, the freedom aspect of it for an adult. On the other hand, I, I don't want the streets to turn into New York where you, you can't walk around without inhaling marijuana smoke, honestly. I don't want that. Uh, I have concerns about how just legalizing it may affect may affect our, our young population as well. I get it's only for adults. You know, I don't I don't know um, also if the economics worked. I mean, that's one of the things some of the states have found out that have implemented recreational marijuana programs that by the time they layer on all the taxes and all the licenses and all the fees and everything else, all the other hoops you got to jump through, because everybody says, yeah, let's legalize it and just absolutely extract all the money we can. Okay, well, then nobody buys it legally, and they keep buying it on the black market, essentially. Which, that was one of the earliest arguments for the legalization of marijuana in the early days. One of the early pushes was a way to combat the black market. Yeah, that's right. But And in states where you do have higher fees or taxes on it, you're seeing a robust black market continue because if you say you have to get a card, well, you go get the card and you go to a dispensary where it's going to cost you 500 bucks for the same thing you can go to your guy for 150 yeah. Well, you got the card. You may go to the dispensary one time to get an official package, but the rest of the time you're just refilling it with black market goods. Yeah, and uh, California in particular – has experienced that because they have really onerous taxes 
Of course, they have onerous taxes on everything, but this is something that you can obtain and avoid the taxes because you just buy it illegally, essentially, on the black market, and um, you're able to circumvent the taxes. And, and so it's not really working out as they planned. I don't think I'm really going out on a limb to say this, but the the appetite for federal deregulation of marijuana, the descheduling of it, taking it off of Controlled Substance Schedule One and either moving it down or taking it out of the schedule entirely. There's a bigger appetite for that at the federal level, due in no small part to what Ben was saying, that the majority of the population seems to be on board with it. There's a much bigger appetite at the federal level than could be argued there is within the halls of the Mississippi legislature. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that's right. And it, and you know, I, mean, I think it was... Was it yesterday, or maybe it was this morning, but there's been another push by Democrat senators to deschedule it. At the federal level. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what I, I think would happen. Uh, just just a little food for thought. And we're, you think about how tenuous this is and really how this isn't a far-fetched thought. You get the House in Democrat control. You get the Senate in Democrat control. You get a Democrat in the White House. It's going to happen eventually. We've had it before, not so long ago. And the only thing that kept stuff like that, like um, removing marijuana from Schedule One, uh, from codifying the right to an abortion, from making D.C. a state, from federalizing elections, you look at the really super high-priority Democrat wish list, was Manchin and Cinema Democrats in the Senate that refuse to let go of the filibuster that refused to repeal the filibuster. You get a different makeup in the Senate where the um, uh, the Senate is in Democrat control. Even if it's 50-50 and you got a vice president that's a Democrat, and they repeal the filibuster or eliminate it, and you get Democrat control of the House, you get a Democrat in the White House, all that would happen. And I, and I believe the next time we have the trifecta, the first thing that will happen it's my opinion, is codification of abortion rights. Essentially making the right to an abortion federal law applying in all 50 states. Right now what we have, as you know, is uh, with the, the Dobbs decision, is that the states make those calls, enact legislation concerning abortion at the state level. And since the overturn of Roe with the Dobbs decision, states which are pro-choice, have been busy passing legislation that dramatically expands access to and the right to an abortion. States such as Mississippi, as an example, went in the other direction that are more pro-life oriented, restricting access to an abortion. But if this was codified at the federal level, making it federal law that every state must conform to, that changes the game. I think that would be the first thing on their list. Just as when the Democrats had the control of the House, the Senate, and the White House in 2009, and the thing that they worked on uh, almost without paying attention to any other issue, without any effort on any other issue, was health care. They, they were just waiting for that magic moment of the stars aligning to ram through the gigantic Affordable Care Act ultimately passing in March 2010. So, just a thought. 
Thomas and Greenwood says they'll never codify abortion federally. The promise of it is too good of a vote getter. Disagree. Totally disagree. Uh, Thomas also wants to know why the school teachers in the state of Mississippi are, I'm using his words, quote, holy and anointed in Mississippi. They're the only ones who get raises, and they're the only ones who everyone wants to, quote, coddle. Is the education lobby that strong? Thomas, were you sleeping when the legislature deliberated the legislation that increased teacher pay, the lowest in the country? It was to get in line with our neighboring states, who, by the way, are siphoning off our teachers. It's what it had to do with more than anything else. Um, just to be competitive and to, and to pay them what was felt to be a fair wage. Now, I know there are state employees that have also clamored for an increase in their pay as well. It's a comp- in a competitive situation. And by the way, by far and away, most state employees are teachers. That's why the Department of Education and education in general accounts for 51, 52 percent of total general fund spending. And the next spending light item in terms of of uh, dollars at the state level is Medicaid. That's nearly a billion dollars, and that's not paying for staff to run the Medicaid program. That's the state providing its match to the federal dollars received to reimburse providers for services delivered under Medicaid. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. The spiked-haired Billy Idol. <laughs> we are back. That's a good song to drive to, by the way. It's one of those, you know. We're in the Element Well studio. Uh, you can keep up with everything happening in the presidential primaries by going to supertalk.fm slash elections. You'll get a full breakdown of state-by-state results, delegate counts, and more. Supertalk.fm slash elections. The ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. Also, we still need blood in Mississippi Blood Services. In particular, they are desperate for the following types, O-neg and O-positive, B-neg and B-positive, and A-neg. Brandon from Corinth says, I don't agree with abortion, but don't force my views on others. What if your child or grandchild was raped? It's still a legit question. Also, what about all the kids in adoption agencies with the price of adoption being so high? So keep in mind, Brandon, that in the state of Mississippi, the law which was triggered when the Dobbs ruling came down from the Supreme Court does prohibit abortion except in the exception of uh, an abortion would be needed to save the pregnant person's life. Or if the pregnancy is the result rape. of rape. Right. So now, I'm not sure we have 
any facilities, clinics in the state of Mississippi that still provide abortion services. I don't know that we do. I think they're all shut down, right, once the ruling came out, because uh, I don't believe there's enough demand for those situations to uh, make the make them economically viable, honestly. So just want to point that out. Thank you all for standing up for not killing babies. God raises up people like you all to stand in the gap for the unborn. And that was when we were talking to Representatives Shanks and Wallace because they did incorporate a provision in the concurrent resolution that would restore the ballot initiative process that prohibits a measure uh, being included on the ballot for the people to vote on that concerns abortion. So really can't modify or amend the existing abortion laws in the state of Mississippi. The people want abortion. Why is that being restricted, says Dwight? Well, you heard Representative Wallace offer his his thoughts on that, his rationale for that is he feels like he's serving as a voice for the unborn in this in this situation that if um, if there were enough signatures and enough who felt like there should be broader access to abortion to the state in the state I should say representative Wallace feels like and I believe others as well in the house that uh, voted for this resolution feel like they're serving as a voice for the unborn. Let's see what else we got. <clears throat> GG wise Mississippi PERS off of this bill. PERS is taxing Mississippians without representation with nine of the ten board members that are not elected. I know you sent that yesterday, David, in Oak Grove. Uh, because if the people, let's look at it this way, David, if the people said, hey, we're just going to end PERS, and, people, and, and if the idea was by ending PERS, that essentially employers would no longer be contributing to it. And employees would no longer be contributing to it as well. And the, and the state essentially wouldn't be funding it. You could say, yeah, well, that would save taxpayer money. Uh, the problem is we'd all end up in court <laughs> is what would happen uh, as citizens of the state. We'd probably lose every employee that works for the state. And I, I can't imagine what would happen to all those who essentially relied on those benefits while they were working for the state, paid into them. And in most cases, it's their sole source of income during their retirement years. That's why, if that makes any sense. Let's see what else we got here. Jeff from Loosedale, I'm listening to your show right now, and all I hear is politicians trying to silence the people's voice. This was at 1125. Our government should be held accountable for the arbitrary removal of the ballot initiative process simply because they didn't like what the people wanted, elite ruling class knowing better than the people. Well, let's think about that, Jeff. You're referring to the Supreme Court of the state of Mississippi. This wasn't removed by the legislature. It wasn't removed by lawmakers. This was removed by the Supreme Court justices of the state of Mississippi. I think they got the ruling right, honestly, because the ballot measure process is is uh, that is currently enshrined in our Constitution. It doesn't work because it explicitly requires that signatures must be gathered from five congressional districts in an equal measure. We don't have before. 
Now, you could certainly argue that when that was inserted in the Constitution, when we had five congressional districts, that that was intentional, so that maybe they knew one day we wouldn't have five and it would invalidate the whole thing. I don't know. I've never really talked to, never researched that, never talked to anybody involved in that, never researched it. So, you know, your voice, remember, we, we uh, our system of government is a democracy, which means it's simply of the people, by the people, for the people, but we elect representatives. It's a, it's a, a Republican form of government, but still the people vote for those who, representatives, who represent us. So I would say that in response to that, the key is vote for people who share your ideas, who support your philosophy. I mean, that's the way that's supposed to work. And um, the majority matters. So I, I don't really feel like that there's any attempt by the legislature to suppress the voice of the people. You have a voice at the ballot box. If you're not happy with what's going on, you have this, this other option. And I feel like that the legislature is, has worked uh, dutifully to restore that. Certainly the House has. They just haven't been able to get together with the Senate. And then you get into the, uh, the the sensitive matter of, okay, well, how many signatures should you have? And what should be prohibited? And what should be allowed? And um, there are a lot, lot of um, complex details to sort out. That's what's currently happening right now. Abortion added to the constant such. Johnny and West Point. I'm not following what that what that means there. It's like taking a toy train from a kid and then giving them the tracks to play with. Kind of the same, but the one with authority still controls everything, says Derek in Greenwood. This watered-down version is so they can say we restored the ballot initiative. You can't do anything with it, but here you go. Well, that's exactly what Robert Johnson, the Senate Minority Leader, said. That's why he described it as a pinto. So I guess that means then, Derek, you believe we should be able to, let's say, for example put a measure on the ballot that would repeal right to work, that would allow abortion up until the um, the third trimester, the end of the term, uh, the, the pregnancy gestation period. I mean, we can go down the list that, that the people should be able to put a measure on the ballot that would eliminate all taxes, no sales tax, no income tax, no revenue that the people should be able to measure on the ballot that would just shut down government, just completely close down, eliminate every single government agency, eliminate the legislature, all statewide elect. I mean, you see the problem with that? You open it up to virtually anything. Now, I'm not saying that would pass, but there's some people out there, Rhino, that would spend a lot of money, you know that, trying to get something like that um, at on the ballot. So that's... It's a tough one. I get what you're saying, Derek. I really do, and, I, and I'm not trying to make light of it whatsoever. But I, I think there have got to be some reasonable constraints, reasonable, because unfortunately you could get a lot of money that would support things that would be very harmful to the state and push it through. And it's no doubt, it is true that abortion's probably been the number one citizen-initiated ballot measure in the country since the Dobbs case, and we have seen, I think, 11 major, major ballot measures, all of which, by the way, have passed and that they expanded rights to abortion. A couple of states, as I recall, Rhino, we're talking about, 
actually enshrined it in their constitutional, I mean, made it a constitutional right. I think in Michigan is one that comes to mind, that the right to an abortion is now incorporated in the state's constitution. And again, I think as soon as Democrats get what they're looking for, control the House at the federal level, House, Senate, and the White House, I do not think you'll see a situation where you'll get 60 Democrats in the Senate or 60 Republicans. I'm not sure we'll ever see that. But what you could see is a majority, 51, that would vote to end the filibuster. And if that happens, then a simple majority could pass such a law which would codify the right to an abortion in all 50 states. Yeah, I think that is a risk and a strong possibility when when that scenario is in place. Coming right back with half an hour left of middays from the Element Well Studio. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio, final segment, Middays. On the text line, I'm a real estate appraiser. Since they made weed legal medically, I'm tired of going in and out of people's houses and having to go home to shower and change clothes so I don't smell like it when I get back to my office and people think I've been smoking it. Man, that, it's a problem. I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, pungent aroma that, I don't know, seems to be very dense in nature and it sticks to everything, doesn't it? And that, I mean, the clothes, carpet. Yeah, I agree. It seems like more so than than just common cigarette smoke. Uh, I did want to go back and just make sure that I um, I quoted the former president on abortion accurately, and this was back last April. And I remember talking about this rhino when it occurred. I was a bit surprised. And he says, quote, when he got asked about the issue of abortion, quote, we'll get something done where everyone is going to be very satisfied. So I wouldn't exactly call that and describe that as a strict pro-life stance, for sure. And again, he... um, He's, he's kind of since then, he's kind of changed the way he responds to that, that question, the question of abortion, which comes up. He says, quote, uh, most recently, I happen to be for the exceptions like Ronald Reagan with the life of the mother, rape, incest. He said, I have to be there. Hmm. He also said, I will say this, you have to win elections. Otherwise, you're going to be back where you were. You can't ever let that happen again. So I I wouldn't exactly characterize that as a strict pro-life stance either. Just wanted to pass that on. But that seems to be where we are. Thomas and Greenwood, they support 15-week bans because it's the least loser position. Abortion bans are a loser for Republicans. See 2020 midterms. I can't remember if I got to this or not, but um, 
Someone said we ought to, where is it, Rhino? Um, Kevin on the road? I don't think we did that one. It says we should force our legislature into a special session to reinstate the ballot measure process. Well, uh, I I mean, the governor's the only one that could call a special session. I, I, I don't think that he has the appetite to do that, honestly. And let's see what plays out here, Kevin. We have a, a bill that... But I think, even then, the special session, if say the governor called a special session to deal with the ballot initiative, it would still have to go on the ballot for the people to vote on it because it's changing the Constitution. And something else, Rhino, I'm not sure about. Can the... Can the governor call a special session to pass a resolution? I don't know. Because remember, resolutions do not require the governor's signature. This would So what we're working on right now, this measure authored by Representative Price Shanks et al., is to, is to simply pass a resolution in both chambers, which then would place it on the ballot for the people to vote on. That, because that's what's required. Because we're doing what we're doing here is amending the Constitution to establish. Think about that: a ballot initiative that would allow the people to put a measure on the ballot to make statute or amend statute. But just keep in mind, what we got to do here is change the Constitution. Uh, that that's what's wrong right now because it codifies explicitly five congressional districts, and we only have four. And amendments to the Constitution require the people to vote. At the ballot, they can be referred to by the legislature, or in the old um, in the old ballot initiative process, could be referred to by the people through a ballot. So that's kind of where we are on that. I mean, technically, they could still be referred by the people. It would just have to go through the legislature. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, um, you could call up your representative or your senator right now and say. I believe this should be in the Constitution, and if you have a good enough argument and they agree with you and think that it would be politically possible, they could draft a resolution to start the ball rolling. That's right. So it's a lot less – it's technically a lot uh, more simplified process and a lot less costly process because it doesn't have to go outside of the building there, and boom, it's on the ballot, and it has to be the next statewide ballot, so we're already spending money to hold that election – that's just another item, if you will, on the ballot, which is what we saw in 2020 with Initiative 65. And remember, the legislature has the option, and they do in this, by the way, as well. If the people go out and they get a measure on the ballot that they want folks to vote on, the legislature still retains the right to refer an alternative, just like they did when um, the ballot measure process was used to amend the Constitution. We had that in I-65. Remember, we had, and that was the medical marijuana, by the way, ballot measure. Remember, we had, what was it, I-65A, I think is what it was called, and that was the legislative alternative. They retained that right, even though we're only dealing with statute here. They retain the same right, does the legislature, should the people get a, uh, a measure on the ballot to be ratified. But isn't it already in the Constitution that we have to let the people have a ballot initiative process? But, yeah, it's been invalidated by the Supreme Court, Kevin. That's what you got to keep in mind. It's, 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 so it has no, no power, no authority, essentially no value, has no, no standing, because the Supreme Court said, nope, that's not valid, so therefore you don't have one. That went away when they made that ruling, essentially. We uh, appreciate you joining us today. We're out of here. We're back in the Element Well studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone.
Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.